Welcome back to the show. This is your host, Ruffin. Today, we're chatting with Claudia Laurie. She is the founder of Prive, the revenue platform for commerce, making it super easy for businesses to increase sales with subscriptions and more. Claudia and the Prive team are backed by notable venture capital investors, including Halogen Ventures, Amity, and Blink Capital. Claudia is also the co-host of The Room Podcast, which is ranked top 5% globally. She's a former Uber PM and graduate of Harvard University. I loved my conversation with Claudia, and I'm so excited to share. Hi, Claudia. Welcome to the show. So excited to meet you today. Um, Do you want to just start off by sharing a little bit about who you are and the business that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on and to chat. Um, A little high-level overview, I guess, of myself. Um, I am Claudia. I'm the co-founder of Prive. Um, We've been around for about two years now, which is super exciting. Um, We're really on a mission to be that revenue layer for commerce. So we sell into e-commerce businesses um, and really unlock subscriptions for them, price experimentation, a lot of things for them to get tighter on their revenue. Um, and prior to that, I was a PM at Uber for roughly three years. That's where I met my co-founder. Um, I was working on kind of the marketplace side of the Uber business. So everything, dynamic pricing, surge, matching. Um, and it was really a great place to kind of get into the nitty gritty of understanding price as an engagement lover. And in many ways, that was what kind of spurred Prive can totally get into the details of that. Um, prior to prior to Prive, prior to Uber, I was Harvard class of 2018, studied computer science and art history there, actually um, was always really passionate about the intersection of commerce and tech. Um, originally from New York, but now based in San Francisco. Amazing. Um, I'm curious, how did you end up deciding you wanted to start your own company? Was that like something you had always thought about? Yeah. Walk me through that. It's a great question. I can't say that I was that six-year-old kid saying, I'm going to be a founder. I don't even know if I really knew what that meant back then. But I was always the kid that had like lemonade stands. I was like sewing outfits for like my friends' teddy bears to sell them. I went to like a fashion design camp in the summers at like FIT and Parsons to try to put together a clothing line, like thought I was going to be a fashion designer for a period of time. So I think I was always a very like entrepreneurially, you know, minded child. Um, But I think really, you know, after studying computer science and joining Uber and really seeing how incredible that growth was, um, I joined right after TK left, right before Dara joined, worked on a lot of kind of new bets on the business, worked a lot with regulations. And it was just a really eye-opening experience. Um, But I think one of the biggest things was there were so much incredible tech and internal tools and ways of thinking about problems that I knew other spaces did not leverage. Had, you know, internships in traditional retail and knew that the way that they thought about pricing and engagement was so different than an Uber. Um, So, you know, when my co-founder and I started chatting about just sort of ideas, um, we started like writing up like one pagers um, of things that we were just really excited about. Um, the idea that is now Prive just kind of stuck. Um, and I think it really took a few months for us to realize, hey, I think we should start this. 
Um, but it was definitely a very good training ground for entrepreneurship. I think a lot of incredible founders have come out of Uber. So I'd say that was a really formative experience for me. Super cool. So first, who is your co-founder? Can you just give a little context on who that person is? Totally. Uh, So my co-founder is called Alex. Um, We joined Uber both as APMs at the same time. He was actually working on launching subscriptions essentially at Uber. So what is now called Uber One. Um, And we were friends for many years. Um, We're also actually dating. So um, it's kind of like a co-founder relationship in more ways than one. Um, But we were really just passionate about building something and really had similar philosophies and principles around certain ways of building, ways to think about problems that when COVID happened and work from home started, um, we just couldn't help but thinking, th- but start thinking through a lot of the ideas that we were passionate about. So you guys started jotting down some ideas, I'm sure going through different like problems and areas that you could address and come up with a company idea. From there, like, where did you go? Was there like, you know, some testing that you did maybe to like be comfortable in terms of like leaving your jobs like and going in on this full time? Curious if you could walk through that process. A great question. Um, it was a lot of conversations with potential customers. I didn't want to start something just to start something. I wanted to start something because I was convinced of a problem that we could solve. And so for multiple months, we were just cold DMing people on LinkedIn, getting intros from friends to brand operators that we wanted to sell into to better understand what they cared about, what kept them up at night. And I think over many months of having these conversations, we gained enough conviction that there was something there. Um, We realized, okay, like, here's what the product could look like. Here's what the go-to-market is. We essentially kind of laid out an entire strategy of what the first six months of this company would look like. Um, and I was chatting to a friend who was an angel investor and she was like, oh, are, I, I want in. Like, are you fundraising? And I was like, oh no, this is like super early explorations. This kind of started out as like a fun project. Um, I don't know. Um, but I think that really accelerated us thinking about, okay, is it time to, to leave? Um, there was definitely interest from an investment standpoint. So maybe this was the right push um, to get a little bit more serious about it. So we eventually decided to leave, kickstarted fundraising process um, and fundraised our first round in February of 2021. Can you share a little bit about what that fundraising process looked like? Like at that point, was it literally you just had that six month strategy or, you know, was there more in terms of traction and then you know, can you share a little bit around how much money you raised, investors that you raised from? It was the true pre-seed fundraise. It was just me and Alex, an idea, hacky MVPs, a lot of calls with potential customers, a lot of need finding, UXR, designs, mocks, a website. But we did not have a team at that point in time. We did not have a product in market. So it was definitely a very early stage to fundraise. Um, we raised 1.65 million as our pre-seed. We raised from some incredible early stage investors. We got so lucky. Um, Blink Capital and X Fund um, co-led our pre-seed. Um, we also got investment from Halogen, which is such an incredible fund focused on female founders, Defy VC, and some strategic angels, like some execs from Uber that just were incredible mentors um, in both my career and Alex's career. Um, 
But the fundraising process was definitely unusual. It was in early 21, so it was all virtual, um, no in-person meetings. And I don't think I knew what I was signing up for. Um, you know, I had some friends that had fundraised, you know, $15 million over a weekend um, just off of a handful of conversations. And those are the happy path stories that stick with you. If I knew that it was going to be 40 plus conversations over, you know, more than a month, um, six conversations a day, like really testing your endurance. Um, I don't know how I would have felt about it um, on the onset, but I think it was such an incredible experience because one, it was really efficient. I wasn't driving up and down Sand Hill Road and I was able to really use that as a way to experiment on what the pitch was. Um, very few times in your life do you have such real-time feedback with so many different tries at bat. And so Alex and I would pitch we would, you know, look at the faces in the call. We would huddle up after, you know, discuss through what were the questions that we got, what we thought went well, what resonated, change our messaging a little bit, maybe tweak the framing, maybe delete a slide from the deck and try again. And so I think by the time we were at the end of the process, um, the pitch, the deck, everything looked completely different from the beginning. And I think that was what made our fundraise expedient and successful. And my advice to founders is definitely treat it as an experiment um, and treat it as a performance in many ways where, you know, the investors are not judging you as a person. They're judging this business. They're judging the pitch. And I think it made it a lot, um, I guess, less less heavy um, than getting, you know, countless no's because everyone will. Um, and the same thing for the fundraise that we did last summer. Um, it really helped to be able to approach it with, okay, let's run this as an experiment. Let's learn as much as we can. And let's just keep sort of pivoting our pitch um, as needed to, to get the deal done. Amazing. Well, this is a great time to shout out your investor, Halogen Mentors, because they connected us. So super cool, um, amazing fund. And I'm excited to interview you as well as some other portfolio companies from them in the future. So that'll be awesome. Yeah. A really funny story actually on how I got in touch with the halogen team. Okay. So uh, I also have a podcast called the room podcast where we yes. interview Madison, my co-host and I interview founders and funders. Um, and so one of our hero wish list guests was Jesse Draper of halogen. We had her on, you know, our first season of our podcast. I'm going to say mine too. I hope, I hope to have her on one day. Shout out to Jesse. Um, we'll make it happen. Um, and right after the podcast, she was like, oh, you know, like I'm having a pitch day. And Madison had sort of like flighted that I was a founder and I was fundraising. And so I ended up pitching to her like the week after we recorded the podcast and got a term sheet from her. So it was really incredible how uh, a fundraise came from a podcast recording. You never know what's going to come up with this one. No, that's so cool. And I think, you know, I have a lot to ask you about the podcast later, but I don't want to get too sidetracked right now. But I think there's a lot to just like putting yourself out there on these types of platforms, like doing content and just, you know, being a little bit more visible, getting out of your comfort zone. This is definitely not something I um, thought I would ever be doing, but it definitely opens up some super cool opportunities. So amazing what you've built with your podcast as well. Um, before we talk about that, would love to know. So once you guys got like that pre-seed round of funding, what were the next steps and like, how did you actually get the business off the ground? Building a team was number one. And, 
you know, it's almost like trite at this point where investors and other founders say, oh, team is the most important thing. I don't think I realized until the past six months how true that really is. Um, a good team will make your life 10x easier and that compounds over time. And a bad team might be the death of the startup um, for no fault of the idea or how energized the founders are. Um, I think we were super lucky that we had a strong engineering network out of Uber. So our first hire, who is now our director of engineering, was an engineer that Alex had worked with at Uber. He had built out subscriptions there. Um, and then our second hire was another engineer from Uber. And um, we've been able to hire some incredible engineering talent from Uber, Airtable, you know, Facebook, Google, so on and so forth, Amazon. Um, and I think a lot of that strong engineering culture came from our first hire. So that was like the immediate thing we did after we fundraised. And the other thing I'll say is it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it definitely took some time to go through the hard yards of interviewing and making sure that who we were bringing on as our first engineer or founding engineer was a great fit. Um, so I have a lot of thoughts there. Um, and then we started, you know, to get building. We kept on having early customer conversations, built out an MVP, started to put together a go-to-market strategy. And the initial product that we built, we sold to, you know, a dozen D2C brands. But after a few months, quickly realized that it wasn't growing as quickly as we expected. And in selling this product, which was, by the way, like a price intelligence platform, similar mission to what we're doing, but slightly different instantiation and focus of the product. The one piece of feedback we kept on hearing from these brands was, this is cool, this is awesome, but like our big issue with subscriptions, can you please help us with that? Can you help us experiment with subscriptions, price, price subscriptions? And we realized, okay, well, this is awesome. Like our engineering team literally built subscriptions. We have someone that worked on subscribe and save at Amazon. We can absolutely solve this problem and really come at it from a tech optimization perspective as opposed to a e-commerce brand agency perspective, which I know some of our other competitors in the space come from. And so it was really a half pivot, I would say. Our mission was still the same, but we got to building a completely different product went to market with that product around November of 2021. And the feedback was so different. We were just starting to sell the product. Brands were referring us to other brands. Um, and that's really kind of the journey of our true go-to-market um, started happening. Um, can you give me like an example or a case study of like a brand that comes onto your platform? Like how exactly does it work? And also just be curious to know what that first product iteration was and how that worked with the brands as well. Totally. So I'll give two kind of examples of different customers because I think we have two unique segments of customers. One, brands that sell one-time products, they have a great you know, repeat purchase rate, but they don't offer anything on subscriptions. They might not think subscriptions is a great fit. We can figure out a way to launch subscriptions for the brand. The other bucket are brands that already have subscriptions, but they're looking to level up. Their current provider and current tech stack is not sufficient for what they're trying to achieve. So they're kind of two different user journeys. On the new to subscription side, we launched um, Third Love, which is such an incredible bra brand. 
Um, they now offer subscribe and save on their bra where you can subscribe, get a new bra every six months at a discount. And you can go into our portal, swap out the colors, change the sizes, whatever you want. And so it's more of like a membership to third love. Um, do skincare um, is another one. They had such a loyal following on socials that they launched, got to multiple thousands of subscribers within just a few days. Um, so that's just kind of one example. And then on the other side, we have brands that are 100% subscription businesses, or, you know, might be 40% subscription businesses that are looking for more complex um, builds, essentially. So we have a meal delivery business that's based out of Hong Kong, Singapore, Dubai, think Blue Apron um, of kind of Europe and Asia. Um, we migrated them from their old provider over to us, which includes kind of setting up the storefront, migrating the payment contracts, which is a pretty seamless process that we've built technology around. Um, so I would say like probably most of our customers more fall into that latter bucket. And then we're able to kind of expand and expand and offer them different products that are associated to help them to continue to get tighter on their revenue. Um, but I would say yeah, our business kind of falls into those two different buckets. Um, in terms of the very first product, um, it's still live, actually, we'll, we still have it. Um, but really, what it did was help brands understand what their market looked like. So instead of just finger in the wind, I'm going to put this product on sale, or mm, $40 seems great for this product. Um, our platform allowed brands to define what their market looked like. So who are their competitors? Who are similar products they really respected? You know, what are other, you know, adjacent spaces they might want to enter? And then they were able to get real-time price data on all of their inventory discounts, when things were going on sale, when things were stocking out, so that brands could make more informed decisions around how to price, when to put something on sale, and really be more of that external analytic um, to supplement their internal data. Got it. And so once you guys change to the subscription product, it sounds like a lot of referrals helped you like really build up your brands on the platform. I guess what were was that the most effective way to grow the brands or have you found success through other marketing channels i think especially like in the commerce space you really need to have a multi-pronged approach to go to market um i would say most of our sales are now from an outbound sales team because we're focused more on kind of the high growth enterprise segment of direct to consumer but that certain wasn't certainly wasn't always the case i would say you know, direct outreach through a sales team is one lever. The other was really community um, selling. So getting into Slack groups, um, you know, knowing people who were really influential in the space, advising other um, D2C brands, having them really be a spokesperson for us. Um, that was kind of another lever. Um, and then I would say the third and final lever that was really great was partnering with agencies and other tech platforms. So we have, you know, many agencies where we're the preferred subscription provider. So as you're working with brands to set up their storefront or revamp their marketing strategy, or, you know, they're the ones doing all of their paid media, we were able to get recommendations from those agencies into customers. So I'd say that's probably the second um, largest bucket for us in terms of go-to-market. Super smart. Do you have a dream brand that you would love to get on the platform or dream uh, brands? There are so many. That is such a great question. One that comes to mind, which is pretty funny, is called Zevia. Um, it is okay. a 
uh, like soda company where instead of sugar, they use stevia and I am ah. like a ginger ale. It's really great. Um, we've been trying to get in touch with them. They're hard to reach. Um, so that's like one hero brand. Um, and then the other would probably be Kylie Cosmetics. Um, mm. I'm so impressed by sort of how that business has scaled and grown and it's such a no-brainer to me that they should offer subscriptions, whether it's a membership where you can get a new seasonal color every quarter, every month. Um, so I think that that's a channel they should really invest in. They have an insane community following. So I would imagine most of their customers would love to subscribe to their products. And I think community is such a, a good word, right? Like, what is the point of a subscription? It's not really to just be transactional and say, oh, sign up for this contract and get 15% off. No, it's like really a lever where you can help drive community. Um, like one of the features we have in our platform is the ability for brands to add gifts to their members, like on every fifth renewal, 10th renewal, um, give them access to exclusive content or invites to events. And so it's just such a great lever for brands to turn their community into something more tangible. That's super, super fun. Taking a step back, tell me about the name Prive and what that means and how you and your co-founder came up with it. Yeah, great question. Um, and thank you for pronouncing it correctly. Yes, not, not privy, Prive. Yeah, not privy. Um, it's the joining of the word pricing and incentive which really speaks a lot to where we started and what the DNA of the company is. Um, I also think it's a funny SaaS way to say Privé, which also really speaks to like personalization and customization, which is also such core design and product philosophies for us. So we're really trying to marry data with crafted unique experiences for consumers. I love that. So now talking a little bit about the podcast, because I selfishly would love to know how you got started on that journey. Um, tell us the name. Um, I've noticed you've had some pretty cool guests on the show. So I'd love to know, you know how you got that started and how you've built that out. Totally. Oh, it's been such a journey. Um, growing a podcast is not easy. So like big kudos to you. And I think there needs to be so many more female podcasters out there. But it got started in 2020, prior to founding Prive, where me and my longtime friend, Madison McElwain, who we met through a mutual college friend, um, we, we were just bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, she was a product manager at Gap. I was a product manager at Uber. We were both really interested in similar spaces in tech. Um, and 2020 rolls around. I'm starting to think about starting a company and pursuing this entrepreneurial journey. And Madison had just transitioned from product into venture. Um, she's now a partner at Defy BC, which also invested in us. And we were going to some of our mentors for advice on just like, how do you start a company, right? Like, how did you get started in venture? And we realized that we had such great access to awesome conversations. And we were like, why is this not something that is more readily available? Like, we have so many other experts we want to talk to. And so we realized, okay, we should just make this a podcast. Um, this should be the place where people can just candidly learn from some of the most iconic and successful founders and funders, like what their early journey actually was like. 
Um, so that's kind of the thesis. It's called the Room Podcast. We're trying to open the doors to the room where it happens, and we really focus on founders and funders that are not traditionally, you know, amplified. So we're really proud that like eighty-eight percent of our guests um, identify as underrepresented, um, whether they're female um, or uh, you know people of color. So that's a little bit about that. We're on season eight. We've had 71 episodes, so it's been crazy that it's been going on for this long. I can't believe it's been you know over two years now. That's so incredible and can definitely relate to your reasoning and for starting the podcast of bringing more light to these conversations and you know sharing that to more people that you know might be interested in exploring one of these paths because I definitely think it's important. I personally went to Wake Forest. We had like, I didn't really know anyone in this realm from the East Coast. So it's it's very cool to hear from different people and hear different stories of people starting companies in the space. And that's all about just sort of like podcasting is there's just been so many podcasts that are driven by male hosts right like whether it's all in or how i built this like such incredible content but it is just such a narrow slice of how to build a company and you know how to even talk about the space that i think just having different perspectives really bring to light that it's not always up and to the right like your four-time public company founder had many struggles and many road bumps along the way and many moments where he or she did not think that they were going to make it. And I, I think that just needs to be talked about a lot more. I totally agree. And I think it all comes back to we're all just trying to figure things out and we're all doing that together. Exactly. I think having more honest conversations like that is super, super important. I guess to that point, I'm curious. So you raised your pre-seed round of funding and then you went on to raise a seed round of funding. What were some like strategies and tactics you took away from your first like round of funding to your next and anything you would yeah. share with people trying to raise their first round? I, I would say um, you have to be really smart around whether the fund is a fit for your company. Um, I think, you know, we were raising in a weird time, like summer of last year, like the market was starting to get a little bit weaker. And so we realized that the sort of prey and spray approach just wasn't going to work. And I see a lot of founders, you know, rank their top 20 funds and they're the Sequoias and A16Zs and, you know, uh, forerunners. And they go to them first and they pitch them first, even though forerunner might not be interested in this like super niche segment that you're building in because they've never invested in that space before. So like, why have that be a target fund? And so I think kind of two pieces of advice, um, don't go to your like ultimate goal investor first, because your first pitch is not going to be the best, like get feedback from the market. Um, otherwise you're going to burn those leads early on. Um, and then really do your due diligence on whether you think you're going to get value from this investor and whether this investor is genuinely interested in value add for your space and stage of company. Um, you know, our early stage investors are early stage investors. Um, and we chose them because they understood so well how to take a pre-seed seed stage company to the series A. They understand, you know, B2B sales. They understand the customers that we're selling into. And that is so much more important, especially at this stage than just going after a name brand fund. Very true. Great advice. I'm curious, how is your team thinking about just like the current landscape of 
raising money and everything that is going on in the ecosystem and your strategy for raising your next round, whenever that might be? Yeah, I think in many ways, given the market, there are more opportunities for early stage companies to take advantage of the uncertainty that's going on. Um, I watch a lot of Drive to Survive. I'm a big Formula One fan. And I think one thing that really jumps out is when it's pouring rain, that's generally the time that the person that ranks fifth or sixth wins the race. And I think that's very similar to this market. Um, we have competitors, other companies in, you know, selling into a similar customer base as us, where they're a team of 30, they're burning so much, they're not able to fundraise, they're not focused on efficiency, they're not going to make it. Um, and so I think it's a really great time for companies that are focused on the fundamentals, focused on efficiency, focusing on solving real problems, as opposed to over-indexing on story and optics. Being able to raise a $20 million round on no revenue and a great story is not going to happen. Um, and I think it's a big wake-up call to founders, but I don't think it's a bad thing because you're going to build a better business for it. So in terms of what we're focused on, we're really focused on customer acquisition, um, scaling our revenue, making sure that our net dollar retention is looking good, making sure that we are thinking ahead and like solving for problems that are going to be real problems in six months. Um, and so that's been the sole focus for the past few months, especially in this environment. Um, and I think it really puts us in a good position where we're going to wait as long as we can to raise because it just doesn't make sense to take venture dollars for no reason apart from, you know, having a great story and being able to raise that much. Um, so I think it, it definitely gives us more of a sober environment um, and headspace to make sure we're actually proving out value. Great perspective and appreciate you sharing that. Curious if there's anything just exciting you want to highlight that's coming up in the next year for Prive. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say I'm really excited about our team. Um, we just hired a few new folks um, and they're crushing it. Um, I think it definitely takes some time for startups to find their footing with who the right fit is for their team. Um our sales team has been crushing it. So big shout out to Zach and Sabrina, who I'm in the trenches with every day. So I'm really excited um, to have some of our team members hit their like one year and two year anniversaries with us. Um, and I'm also excited to continue to scale the team as the business scales. So that's probably what I'm most excited for on the Pride front, including some new products that we're launching that really kind of expand us beyond subscriptions and really put us more in line with our vision to be that entire end-to-end -end revenue layer. Um, and also really excited that things are happening in person again. Um, we recently met two of our big customers in person um, in Miami, as well as in the Bay Area. And it was just awesome and a different experience to be able to have those in-person touch points. So nice to be back in person with people. Do you guys have an office in San Francisco or does your team work remote? Yeah, we're hybrid. 50% um, of our team is in office in San Francisco. I have a Zoom background on, but if I had it off, you would find me downtown in Union Square, San Francisco. Um, but then half of our team um, are in LA, Florida, um, Oregon, all over the US. One of my favorite questions, can you share a female founder, investor, or leader who inspires you and a little bit about why? I'm going to have to pick two, if that's okay. Um, I, I will allow it. Okay, thank you very much. Um, female investor is definitely Madison. 
Um, you know, she's my podcast co-host, best friend, um, have really, you know, seen her growth in her career. And if she's someone to bet on, it's her. Um, I would definitely trust her investment advice. So I would say it has to be her. And then in terms of a female leader, I have to say that um, a VP of product at Uber, Arundhati Singh, um, is probably one of the most legendary product leaders I've ever been able to learn from. She's, you know, an angel investor in us, and we're so lucky to have her. I've never met someone who is so structured and thought um, is the most incredible combination of being able to stand her ground and push back, but do so in a way that actually builds alignment and does not polarize teams. Um, and I honestly just wish that I had more time to, to learn from her directly. Um, so Arundhati is awesome. Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing. And then finally, where can people find you, your podcast and Prive? Yeah. Um, add me on LinkedIn. I'm there. Twitter, uh, Claudia C. Laurie. Find me on Instagram, whatever you want. Um, in terms of the podcast, it's called The Room Podcast. Um, also find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and then in terms of Prive, check out www.tryprive.com. Um, we integrate with most stores on Shopify. Um, so also DM me if, if that's of interest. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining the show. It was incredible to meet you. I'm so glad we got an intro. And yeah, just thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Robin. It was so much fun chatting and excited to, yeah, to keep chatting on so many other topics. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Future is Female. As always, if you're a fan of the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll talk to you next time.